Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Lynn Alden, a crowd favorite here on the channel. And we go asset by asset today. We talk about China, Russia, and the United States and how Lynn is playing the energy market. We talked about the FTX scandal, how she is playing the crypto market. We talked about the scarcity of capital and how Lynn is playing the equities market. And we talked about safe haven asset classes and how Lynn is playing the gold market. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed hosting it. As always, beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. It's free. I love writing it. Subscribe today and join the team. It's super fun. Anyways, here is Lynn Alden. Enjoy. Welcome back to The Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined once again by Lynn Alden. Lynn, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to talk to you. Now, there's a few directions I want to go, but I want to start with a tweet that you sent out uh, this week, and I'll just read it here. You said, if you lived in a developing country and needed to sell your house, store the wealth for two years, and then buy another house, where would you store that value? And the responses that you got to this question posed on Twitter just fascinated me. Everything from you had a few people from Argentina saying they would actually just hold cold cash, whether in the mattress or in one case, maybe two. They said in the back corner of a washing machine, one individual sounded like they were actually doing this uh, and then paying 70% upfront for their new house. Um, response from Pakistan, who said they would purchase a large uh, number of automobiles and then store the wealth in automobiles and then reference an article showing people using automobiles as a wealth preservation asset class as a proxy to US dollar. It absolutely blew my mind. And then uh, an example from Zimbabwe referencing a gentleman who started a pension fund that was cattle based because his mother retired, received her pension. It was worthless due to inflation. So he started this business called NACO Life Assurance and I can contribute to the pension. He converts it to cattle breeds the cattle to achieve a return on investment. When I retire, I'm awarded the cattle that I've purchased over the years. And what did you, first of all, why did you send this tweet? What were you looking to discover? And what did you learn um, as a process? Uh, so basically, I, I actually know people that are kind of going through that question. And, and it's, it's, it's funny because it should be a remarkably simple answer, right? You, you, yeah. you sell the house, you hold money, and then you buy it when you're when you're ready. You buy another house. That's the that's the kind of the purpose of money. It's the most saleable good. So you hold it in something liquid and stable, and then you sell it. And it's I even made the analogy I think one point in the thread where I was like, you know, in the 1800s we invent electricity, but we still can't. There's billions of people in the world that that have this very simple question of if I want to store liquid wealth for two years, where do I do it? Because of course, uh, for context, you know, developing countries often have currency problems. Uh, it could be actively ongoing, right? So it could be a, a very high level of inflation and currency devaluation, or sometimes they're they're abrupt, right? So you can it, it might not be actively raging right now, but then when you look at, for example, their country's sovereign bonds, they're junk rated, right? So the global market is is concerned about you know, risks of default, which of course would come with uh, usually a severe amount of currency devaluation. And so basically there are billions of people in the world that live in an environment where they can't necessarily trust their local money. And then some of the developed, the, like the the responses from, so 
part of what I was doing was kind of just showcasing this problem. And, and I was also curious to see the various answers. Uh, and so the, some of the responses from developed market participants was telling because they're like, oh, yeah, I would just hold dollars. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, wh- where would you hold dollars, right? Because, for example, you know, there's periods in Argentina where you, you'd put dollars in the bank and then they'd, they'd say, well, you know, we have dollar crisis. So we have to just take those and convert those to pesos at the exchange rate that we pick. Sorry, you just lost most of your savings. Um, and so you can't necessarily trust counterparties uh, in that environment because, you know, those those are, you know, when you deposit dollars at a foreign bank, those are now dollar liabilities to you. And, you know, their central bank can't print dollars, right? So they could default or otherwise be, be told to confiscate that, that money. Uh, and so you have people storing physical cash, which, you know, obviously you, one is you don't earn interest on it. So, you know, you're, you're, you're prone to the full brunt of the, even the dollars devaluation. But then also you have obviously security risks, right? Of just holding a house worth of value of physical dollars in you know your apartment ever when, when you go out to get the groceries you better hope that you're not robbed yeah. and again in the context of a developing country usually not always usually crime rates are are somewhat elevated compared to what people um, are used to in say a developed developed country suburb environment right and so uh, other people said gold um, a lot of people said stable coins that's actually one of the one of the use cases stable coins so for example argentinians uh, it's common for them to hold dollar stable coins because it's a way of holding dollars outside of the local banking system, right? They're still trusting a counterparty, but that counterparty is not in their country, at least, right? So they, they have other risks, obviously, with that, but it's, at least it's the hub of it is outside of their country. Uh, some people said Bitcoin, obviously, the problem there is it's very volatile over a two-year period, um, as we've seen recently. And so it kind of just shows that, that, that there's not a lot of great answers for people that in, in developing countries that want to just, you know, especially if they're having an ongoing currency issue, where they want to sell a house and then store the value and, and buy another house. It's kind of a, it's a remarkably simple problem, but we haven't solved it yet. Yeah, it should be a simple problem. And if, I guess, if money did what we all expected it to do, it would be a simple answer as well. Money should be simple. We shouldn't have to overthink how money is yeah. going to perform. You know, were there any grand takeaways for you, Lynn? Like any sort of aha moments as you read through the, the hundreds of responses? What really impressed me was the geographical dispersion of your responses. Really impressive. Yeah, I'd actually say I was really impressed with all the answers I got from around the world. Uh, the part I was a little bit disappointed by, I guess my takeaway was I was surprised at how many people in developed countries have not thought this through and mm-hmm. and how they don't, they don't consider the counterparty risk because a lot of them were like, oh yeah, I'd buy dollars or like stocks. And it's like, well, yeah. Like where exactly? I mean, not, not, you know, a lot of people in developing countries don't have, you know, brokerage accounts with access to global equity. I mean, obviously some do, but it depends on the country and it depends on their on their socioeconomic status and, and things like that. And so I think a lot of people just didn't realize the privilege they had that is not always available uh, in those countries, especially countries on, on maybe the, the lower end of the income spectrum of, of developing countries, right? So it's the ones that are even more prone to currency issues and, and low uh, GDP per capita. Right. Now, I know you asked the question in the context of developing countries, but in the context of United States, where you're based, how would you answer that question, Lynn? If you were to sell your house today, preserve the wealth for two years, repurchase the house, where are you holding that wealth? So I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a, a diverse amount of liquid assets. I have equities, I have cash, I, I have all, you know, I have Bitcoin, I have gold, um, I have all sorts of assets. So for me, you know, a lot of it would probably be a good chunk of it would be in cash for a two-year period, but I would, you know, in, in treasury bonds, probably like T-bills. Um, but I would also probably diversify that into, into you know, kind of lower beta equities, 
um, things like that, right? So I wouldn't have too much cash exposure at any one time. And so basically I have the same, you know, we have the same problem, but at a much lower magnitude where you know, we're probably not gonna get wiped out in two years. Whereas in some of those countries, you could literally lose half or three quarters, or in some cases, all of that savings mm. in a two year period. Whereas in the, in the dollars case, you know, it, especially in a, depends what happened with real estate. Sometimes it's going sideways or down. Um, and so, you know, your, your dollars might be able to, you know, kind of get through that two-year period. But it, it, basically, even in developed developed countries, there's still somewhat of a, a challenge there. It's just a smaller one. Right. Are you playing offense anywhere with your portfolio right now? Or are you, are you pretty ingrained in defensive positions? Talk to me about that. So this year, I've been emphasizing defense. So, uh, you know, short-term, like cash equivalents, um, def- uh, healthcare stocks. Uh, I've been in, in energy, and and then also energy pipelines, which mm-hmm. which are a somewhat lower beta um, and more income focused play on the energy sector. It's more about volumes than prices. Uh, and you know, it, prior like in prior cycles, those pipelines were anything but safe. I mean, they had too much leverage. Uh, a lot of them performed very poorly. They were overvalued. Uh, but after the 2020 like washout in that space, um, I consider them to be pretty low risk. Um, and so I've been I've been in that space. Where I play offense is things like I, I have you know say Brazilian equities, some Indian equities. So there's select emerging markets that I like. Um, ironically, the you know the Brazilian currency is held up better than than many. You know, it's been one of the top uh, performing currencies this year because their their central bank's been pretty hawkish. Um, I also I, I have a kind of a, a permanent slice of a, a Bitcoin allocation. Um, other defensive assets include precious metals um, and just you know real estate with a low fixed mortgage attached to it. So overall, I'm on the defensive side, but I still take um, you know pockets of risk and volatility. Right now, obviously, you've been covering and been investing in the, the Bitcoin, maybe the crypto space for a few years. When you see um, collapses like we're seeing right now, you know, on the back of a criminal scam, right? It can destroy sentiment. Prices fall with that. Do you see this as an opportunity to rush in and take advantage of these cheap prices? Or are you on the sidelines kind of waiting to see how market sentiment is going to respond? Like, what are your thoughts on the crypto space right now, Len? So I dollar cost average in uh, for, for part of my portfolio. Um, and, and generally when we get these like, uh, capitulations, I usually, uh, you know, throw a little bit extra in there just to buy the, 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 the capitulation. I do think you have to be a little bit careful because we don't know the full extent of this contagion yet. Right. So I wouldn't say back up the truck. Um, I would say if, if someone's interested in a very contrarian space, they can layer in, that might be a way to do it. Overall, I would say it's, it's bittersweet because, you know, I, so I focus, uh, almost exclusively on the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, I, I'm pretty skeptical of most other cryptos other than stable coins, which we just talked about. Um, and, you know, a lot of those are just casinos. So those exchanges are casinos and, and the DeFi protocols are about leveraging and, and trading tokens that are, you know, 99% not going to do well over a five-year period, um, if not, you know, actually a higher percentage than that. Uh, and so there is this kind of really big sort of parasitic kind of crypto casino industry built on top of what I think is actually an innovation of Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is a useful savings technology and a, and a payment technology. You can self-custody it. That's one of the key, you know, things that's, that's one of the key kind of um, good things about it is that you don't, you, if you don't want counterparty risk, you don't have to have counterparty risk, right? So what we right. just saw was, was basically a tremendous advertisement for counterparty risk and initial sources I'm seeing are showing that on chain, 
a lot of small buyers are are taking custody of Bitcoin, and there's been a surge in hardware wallet sales, right? So at least some people I think are getting the the memo. Uh, but it is, you know, it's obviously um, a challenging environment. It's bad for price in the intermediate term, and it probably will slow down, uh, you know, institutional allocations. Uh, it'll probably reduce VC uh, capital in the space. I, I generally think there was already an oversupply of VC capital to the crypto industry. I, I think a lot of that was malinvestment. And actually, the, the Bitcoin-only VC ecosystem is much smaller. Uh, and I think that's a much healthier space because it's not about building, you know, it's, it's less about leveraging casinos and things like that. And it's more about payments, utility, better wallets, uh, you know, liquidity providers, better infrastructure, that sort of thing. If I were to ask you what you think the biggest shift or fallout will be from the FTX scandal, and that could be maybe just broad contagion through uh, through other markets expanding outside of crypto because of the number, there's over 100 companies that will be impacted or that are declaring bankruptcy as a consequence. Um, and if you look at the exposure to FTX, you know, it, you mentioned a lot of the venture capital firms, but like Sequoia, some of the biggest names in the business, actually some Canadian pension funds had exposure to FTX. Like it was, it was pretty broad. And so now I've got individuals like Kevin O'Leary, right? He's a finance personality on camera saying he's running to Washington today to demand regulation, right? Um, and so if you were to speculate about what what major shift or change will occur as a consequence of this latest blow up, does anything stand out to you as the most influential shift? So I've I've my base case is that I think that the bubble we saw this time in crypto is probably the biggest bubble we'll see. And I keep joking that it's kind of famous last words, you know, four years from now, yeah, yeah, yeah. A bigger <laughs> bubble. But I actually think the co the combination of the macro environment, right? So the end of like a 40 year cycle of lower interest rates, you know, all the way to zero, all that, all that COVID stimulus, uh, you know, basically I think, you know, that bubble might be the biggest one. That might be the high watermark for how big the, the X Bitcoin, like, you know, crypto casino part of that, uh, industry, it, it, I think it'd be pretty hard to rival the size uh, of what it did throughout, say, 2020, 2021. Um, but we'll see. Uh, so I think that might be. I think I think there's gonna be more skepticism among VCs and institutions about what they invest in. Uh, I also do think there's there's a, a higher chance of regulation now coming. Uh, kind of hidden in the um, the week was that the SEC won a court case uh, against the you know lesser known altcoin. Um, and basically, you know, found that they were a security, that they did an ICO uh, and and other aspects of, of you know, the, the test for what is a security. And that that now strengthens the legal precedent that they could use to go after uh, kind of the vast majority of the crypto space out there. I mean, the SEC chairman has said that most um, assets that trade on these exchanges are, are probably unregistered securities, right? So this wouldn't include Bitcoin. It probably would not include things like Litecoin and other of these kind of like, you know, say proof of work coins that didn't have like an ICO. But if a token had an ICO, there's a good chance that it's, it's basically a security and most of them are not registered as such. Some of them are. Uh, and so I do think that there will probably be more regulation against the, the onshore exchanges, ironically. So this was like an offshore exchange, but I think that it will, it will extend to onshore exchanges, especially because that, that's what they have more ability to go after. Yeah, of course. And do you think that Sam Bankman-Fried's donations to the Democratic Party will have any weighting on how this shakes out from a regulatory standpoint? I think he donated about $40 million um, to various uh, Democratic campaigns. You know, 
will that influence how regulation shakes out in, in the sense it'll come out lighter than it would have otherwise? Or what are your thoughts or heavier? Well, so before the blow up, SBF was pushing for regulation, uh, you know, to a very extent. He was kind of positioning himself in D.C., uh, as one of the the say the crypto platforms that was pro-regulation, ironically, um, yeah. uh, it's kind of almost like using regulation as a tool against you know other competing firms, uh, and so I think that version's probably not going to continue. Uh, but I do think that there's going to be more regulation, and then there is kind of the you know politicians can have embarrassment, right? I mean, if you were if you were a politician on stage with this guy or got donation donations from him. Uh, it basically out of like, you know, potentially out of like customer deposits. It doesn't look good, right? So the optics are really bad around that. He was one of the largest donors in the country, uh, political donors. Uh, and so I do think that um, it could be used as an example. Uh, sometimes, sometimes kind of um, court precedents or politicians will use a specific thing uh, as yeah. their catalyst to push through legislation. I think that this is, um, this is one that they're probably going to use. And if you were to speculate on what kind of regulation would be the answer to this, right? Anything come to mind? Well, I think I, mean, I think it's likely that onshore exchanges are going to have to register with the SEC and potentially also the you know, the CFTC, right? Because you have a, a mix of assets that a handful might be commodities, uh, you know, Bitcoin, maybe Litecoin, and some others, and then you have majority of which are probably securities, and so they they probably would have to go through some sort of registration process. Maybe it's a simplified process. I don't really know. I think it depends on how how well they do it. I mean, they could, you know, the, I, actually Michael Saylor gave a good um, interview on this recently. He described it as they can go in the direction of progressive regulation or regressive regulation. So regressive would basically saying, you know, these are all unregistered securities. You have to go through the full security process. It kind of wipes out most, most onshore trading. Mm-hmm. Um, or they can do the more progressive approach. Say, okay, here's this new policy. This is how you register a token. These are the disclosures you need, um, and this is how an exchange, you know, registers with both the SEC. And you know, they they could have this kind of like clear path of what you're supposed to do. So I, I think it depends on how much buy-in they can get. I think there is some jurisdictional battling between the CFTC and the SEC on this matter about certain, you know, certain tokens if they're commodities or securities or not. Um, you know, this also extends over into a spot Bitcoin ETF, even though Bitcoin's not a security. Uh, Gensler has uh, the chairman of the SEC. Gensler has cited a number of times that he's he's concerned about the exchanges, you know, where the price is determined, and so he, he basically wants them more regulated before he would allow a spot uh, Bitcoin ETF. And so, in general, I I I I think it'll probably focus heavily on these exchanges. And and the ability, you know, kind of their threshold for what they let on their platform and what the process is. Yeah. Okay. And and how the investor Lynn Alden is playing this scenario is to continue to dollar cost average in to Bitcoin, primarily. That's the the main play here for yourself. Yeah. For me, I think I think Bitcoin's innovation. Um, I think that most other assets in the space, what they do is they sacrifice some degree of decentralization to try to do something else. They try to make it faster or more expressive. Uh, and you know, some of those are interesting experiments, but um, I, I think I think Bitcoin remains kind of the, the key innovation in that space. Obviously, you have to be careful about position sizing, volatility, things like that. Uh, but I, I do think that Bitcoin will have another bull cycle in the years ahead. Um, I don't know if you've seen the, the full low or not. It depends on the extent of this contagion. Um, but I would be very, very cautious about anything outside of the of the Bitcoin space. Okay, let's pivot to the energy sector for a minute. And I'd love to get your thoughts. What major indicators or trends are catching your attention in the energy space right now, Lynn? 
So mainly the two biggest variables are U.S. and Chinese policy, right? So the U.S. has been drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve, um, and that's you know that's quelled some of the supply side shortages uh, in energy markets. So I think that the the number one context is that there's not a lot of spare capacity, right? OPEC does not have a lot of spare capacity. Uh, you know, shale can only grow so quickly. We might start see starting to see some Russian uh, energy come off the market uh, in the years ahead. Um, and there's still strong growth from, you know, emerging market energy consumption perspective, right? India still wants more energy every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's kind of a supply side issue. And then there's, you know, we can only draw down the strategic petroleum reserve for so long. Uh, I think we're probably getting towards the end of that cycle. Uh, and so that can put upward pressure on prices. And then number two is, is China, right? So if you look at, at Chinese um, retail consumption, construction activity over the past two, three years, it's been, it's been very stagnant. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's partially due to the, the, just the unending rolling lockdowns they keep doing. And it's also due to uh, kind of a planned demolition of excessive leverage in the real estate market. Uh, they have kind of a, a top-down plan to rein some of that in. They, you know, they go through cycles, but this one's been particularly um, austere in that, in that area. So the combination of, of deleveraging and uh, these, these lockdown procedures are reducing overall Chinese energy consumption compared to the prior trend, compared to the baseline. So if they ever if they ever reverse those policies, if they do more stimulus, if they do more reopening and stay stay open, that's a you know that's an uptick in, in energy demand, uh, oil demand. Uh, and so I think those are the variables to watch. Right now, it, there's kind of both tight supply and demand destruction, uh, just from you know Fed tightening policy, Chinese lockdowns, and if those you know in the next couple of years if if though if that turns into the next upswing uh that's where i'd be pretty concerned about higher energy prices okay now can i ask you a question so if i understood you correctly you mentioned that the zero covid policy in china might be a strategy to deleverage the exposure to the housing market to the real estate market did i understand that correctly no i think they're two separate issues right so and they've okay. been explicit about their goals um you know they they've basically i i think it was the president there said um is like houses are for living and not speculating in, right? Uh-huh. And so okay. basically, you know, people um, uh, watching this probably know that China has a lot of a very high valuations and a lot of leverage in its in its um, real estate sector. Uh, that's been kind of a known long-term issue. And policymakers there have been trying to rein that in. Uh, there have been a number of defaults, and rather than jumping in with stimulus and bailouts and things like that, they've, you know, they obviously try to rein in the, the speed with which things come down and, and you know, spread it out a little bit, but they've, they've not, you know, they've been pretty much letting defaults happen and letting deleveraging occur uh, to somewhat, you know, keep the strength of the currency and, and kind of clear out some of that leverage. Uh, and so that's something they have been pretty explicit about. That's kind of a separate issue than the whole right. ongoing lockdown thing. So those are kind of two simultaneous variables that are reining in uh, Chinese overall consumption. Do you think there's anything other than the uh, sort of public-facing zero COVID uh, mitigate risk for the population behind these extensive lockdowns? I mean, how long, if you were to think and speculate, how long will this continue? And is there any any like control narrative behind this other than just let's keep our citizens safe? Anything else at play? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on Chinese domestic policy. There are people, you know, there are China watchers, for example, that, that cover that a lot more extensively than I do. I actually would have expected that they probably would have opened before their their you know their national congress right I thought because so you, right after yeah, yeah yeah you would think that they would want a strong economy leading up to that but they they just they just kept that going uh, you know all the way up to that 
Um, there are fresh reports now that, you know, they're kind of aiming for the, the first half of 2023 for more of a reopening. Um, but we'll see how persistent that is. Right now, they kind of have this little spike in cases, so I wouldn't expect it right away. Uh, but it does look like they might be planning. I think it's they can only kind of go so long with deleveraging and this, you know, kind of stagnation that they're in before they would risk, uh, you know, less and less public buy-in about what they're doing. Um, so my guess is next year, but I don't have a strong view. And as for their their intentions, I mean, it is complicated because they, you know, they use zero COVID and low cases as as a supposed example of why their economic model and political model is better than the West, right? Yeah. They they basically so it's kind of like once they stick with it, now they're now they're stuck with it uh, optically, right? And so it, it's hard to pivot out of that. Um, and I think they have to they have to navigate a way to pivot out of that. Uh, that's number one. And then number two, I mean, I, you know, I have some Chinese contacts there and I mean, there's, there's some percentage population that, that supports it. I mean, even some of the public buys into, you know, that, that vision. Um, and so I think it's one of those things that over time, public opinion shifts, if they realize that variants are getting more mild, it's almost impossible to, to do zero COVID, uh, and that the economic stress keeps building. Uh, and so that the whole, like, you know, cost to benefit keeps worsening and more and more people kind of turn against it. So I, I think they're probably going to pivot out of that next year. But like I said, I would have expected it this year. And as for other motivations, you know, some people suspect that it's it's to keep a lid on energy and inflation, um, you know, to some extent. And other ones uh, view it as a, you know, kind of almost a purposeful disruption of the, of the West, right? Because, you know, there those supply chain limitations trickle into, into us as well. Um, but I, I generally use Occam's razor here. So I think the simplest explanation is more likely to be correct. Uh, but again, I don't, I don't focus heavily on Chinese domestic policies other than the basics. Right. And what, what could be, what you're saying there could be is that by keeping China in perpetual lockdown, you're creating immediate demand destruction, keeping a lid on inflation in China, simultaneously fueling inflation in the West because you're moving China from the global supply chain. Right. Yeah, or at least you're you're reducing the marginal ability for China to to ease some of those supply chain restrictions. Although we have seen general trend improvements, obviously compared to the the worst stages of the of the crisis in, in terms right. of logistics. So between uh, yes, United States drawing down the strategic petroleum reserve, getting close to tapping that probably, if that is matched with a China reopening in Q1, right? That could. As you said, you're, you're, you know, you're worried about raising energy prices, but that's the opportunity for the investors. So how are you positioned in that market and, and where are you looking? So I'm, I'm structurally long energy. So I, I try not to trade it too much. Uh, I, I just, you know, I own a number of energy producers. I own pipelines. I plan on holding them for you know, probably five years or more. Um, okay. uh, if we do start to see an uptick in economic activity, and uh, I, I could, for example, lean more into that, right? So I would, I would position based on what's happening right now. We're still in a, uh, you know, kind of in the U.S. at least, we're in a demand destruction cycle. Um, you know, tight Fed, uh, declining PMI, so purchasing managers index, um, overall slowing economic activity, uh, inverted yield curve, potential 2023 recession. So, you know, I think that we have to right now kind of balance that supply side with the demand side watch for signals, watch for pricing, watch for economic activity, see what happens. And if we do start to get that, that next up cycle in economic activity, while we still have energy constraints, that, you know, I'd be, I'd be quite bullish. Uh, but even between here and there, I'm still, I, I, don't, I don't get out of my energy positions. 
Okay. And so you mentioned uh, pipeline companies, you mentioned producers, and that's where you're looking for exposure in that market. Uh, can we talk about the broad equities market for a minute here? And I guess my question for you, and this may be an idea that's that's not too well thought out, but if you look at what Elon's done with Twitter, you know, took uh, one of the biggest tech companies on the exchange, private, massive cuts, probably driving towards profitability. Could he be showing the market there's a better way to do this? And now the capital is becoming scarce, maybe going private, maybe driving towards profitability instead of growth at all costs is an achievable model. And look, I'm going to do it first. You can follow if you want to. Is Could this be the beginning of some kind of a trend, Lynn? Is that too far-fetched or what do you think? I think that trend's already in place uh, and it's, it's not even necessarily led by Twitter. It's been happening over the past couple quarters. Uh, whereas, so to back up a second, when you're in an environment of long-term zero rates uh, and you have a, a growth company, right? The, the, the cost of capital is very cheap. Your equity valuations are very high. Um, investors are happy to look out 20 years at your long-term growth prospects. And then what you can do is you can keep prices low and you can just run unprofitably and you can essentially pay a lot of your employees with constantly diluting your shares by issue, you know, issuing shares, paying them the shares, high valued shares that keep going up. And that works until it doesn't. Um, and one of the catalysts that makes it not work is, a, is higher interest rates, right? Because now there's actually a cost of capital. And so that, that lowers equity valuations, uh, which makes it harder to maintain that model of, of, you know, being unprofitable and paying everything with equity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to raise prices. Uh, but that slows down growth. I mean, it's, it's almost like part of that growth was artificial because the prices were artificially low. Uh, and so as that kind of doom loop happens and you get even lower valuations and then you have to raise prices more and t- until they they find, you know, they clear out the malinvestment and they find what is the actual clearing price for these products, these services. Um, and so I, I do think we're seeing that across the board. There's been a number of tech layoffs. There's been a number of um, hiring freezes. Uh, in the space. Uh, Twitter's is obviously one of the more severe cases. Um, and so I, I do think this is going to be a longer trend, most likely. And and so, you know, there's labor shortages in some parts of the market, especially like, you know, um, uh, service work, blue collar work, that type of thing. But there there's, you know, some of the, the weaknesses we're seeing is in things like the mortgage industry, the tech industry, these more white collar jobs, uh, and actually on average, higher paying jobs. I think that's where we're going to see ongoing weakness for a while. Okay. And within the equities market, you know, we touched on the energy sector. Are there any other industries that you're looking at, whether for defensive reasons or offensive reasons? So for defensive reasons, I, I've been using healthcare. Uh, as okay, you, know, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Please explain. Yeah, because there, yeah, there, well, there are a number of equities that are, obviously most equities are down this year, but there are actually a number of healthcare equities that are flat to up this year, right? So that, you know, they haven't been as strong performers as energy, uh, but they've been among, um, you know, the, the better performers in the market. And that's because they they came into this year with reasonable valuations, uh, decent dividends in many cases, uh, and they're not very economically sensitive. Uh, you know, people still consume healthcare in a, in a recession. Um, and so, you know, I think of when you eventually get a more risk on type of sentiment, uh, those could lag behind, you know, some of this trend could reverse. Uh, but I have a number of healthcare stocks as part of the portfolio. And I, 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 I still view them as being reasonably attractive at this time. So for me, defensive is things like pipelines, healthcare, uh, cash, gold, that sort of thing. Um, and, I, you know, I 
I'm optimistic on on things like industrials as well, defense contractors, unfortunately, uh, given the, the state of the world. Um, so I, I do think that there are more cyclical things that you can invest in as well. Um, I think copper is interesting long term. I think there are a number of places that are interesting long term, and it depends on your time horizon. Yeah, and you mentioned your energy time horizon is about five years, which is where I like to sit. You know, anything less than that, I, I kind of lose a bit of faith. Simultaneously, I guess it's harder to predict long term, but you know, if you can get, I tend to have more confidence in secular trends, I guess, I guess. Um, can you elaborate on the healthcare exposure a little bit? What kind of companies are you looking at, Lynn? Well, so I've been in, I've, I've been in health, health insurance companies uh, quite a bit. I've been in um, diversified, you know, blue chip uh, drug producers, uh, that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, basically across, across the board, um, focusing on ones with, you know, reliable year over year dividend growth. Um, uh, so they're kind of like, you know, growth at a reasonable price companies, uh, basically just classic dividend paying, uh, blue chip type of stocks. Um, and so, you know, I've been, for example, I used Cigna, it's a health insurer and, and pharmacy benefits manager. I've used that as a key example. Um, it recently got a little bit overstretched, so it corrected somewhat. Um, so I think that, you know, it's possible that the healthcare factor outperformance, you know, might start coming to an end. Um, compared to how how much it outperformed, you know, for the most of this year, but I do still think that it's one of the better places to be in the market, and that you can kind of set it and forget it with again like a you know a three to five year time horizon. You can hold a number of, of these equities, and that they're probably better places to be than cash. And you know, compared to the S and P five hundred, you have you have less exposure. You know, the S P the problem with the S and P five hundred it's so weighted towards those big tech stocks, right? So. Yeah. Um, and another, another way to play that is I, I like the equal weighted S&P 500 um, a little bit better than the normal S&P 500. There's a simple ETF that investors can do. It's harder for very, very large pools of capital to do it. Uh, but for you know retail investors and funds, um, it's, it's a perfectly acceptable uh, thing. And it, over the very long arc of time, equal weight uh, S&P 500 has outperformed market cap weighting. Um, and it, it does, you know, it goes through years sometimes where it doesn't, but in general, um, that's been a trend. Okay. We've covered crypto energy equities. You mentioned gold as one of your defensive positions. Has anything shifted in how you're allocating capital to the gold space? Um, cause we've, we've covered your strategy there every time I've had you on, um, for the last couple of years. So are you looking at producers, dividend paying royalty companies, physical, where are you putting cash? So I, I use the majority of it for physical. Uh, I use it primarily as a defensive asset, uh, as a as a bear asset store of value. Uh, but I also go into you know because I, I don't I don't focus on the small caps. I don't you know I don't have a background in geology or or it's not it's not an industry that I go deep on right. So I, I focus on the larger players. I focus on the royalty companies. Yeah. Um, one thing to be mindful of is if you are bullish on energy, uh, that's a significant cost for the miners. Um, but it's not really a cost for the royalty companies. So, for example, if someone has an expectation where they expect oil to uh, uh, gold to go high, but not energy, then the miners would be very well positioned. You get them at lower valuations. Uh, that's pretty attractive. If you expect both gold and energy to go up, then the ones that don't have their costs affected, like royalty companies, would probably be better positioned. But of course, you're paying a much higher valuation uh, for that view. And so, I like I like a mix of both. Uh, overall, I, I, I kind of, you know, I overweight the royalty companies, but I still have a number of miners as well. That's where I point people when they ask me, you know, how should I begin exposure to the gold sector for the exact reasons you discussed, 
right? Um, gold definitely performs, can perform well in an inflationary environment, but every other input that goes into mining gold goes up. And so those profit margins can get crushed pretty quickly. Royalty companies have some insurance against that. I like that strategy. Look, Lynn, this has been great. I appreciate your time. I always appreciate your time. Thanks for coming back. And um, lynnalden.com for sure. Uh, Lynn Alden contacts on Twitter. Anywhere else I should point people to, to hear more from you? Uh, no, that's it. Thank you so much for having me and, and have a great day. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.